Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you for your mercy to us in Christ. And Lord, as we turn to your word, we pray that you would speak to us and we pray that you would be reorienting our hearts to make us people who praise you as we should. Lord, help us to reflect on all that you've done for us. Cause your word to pierce our hearts and cause us to be those who respond to you as we should and thereby are adorned by you, made beautiful by your salvation. So we pray that you would do a great work among us, Lord. Make us attractive to those who need hope. Cause the gospel to go forth from us. Win people to yourself. Gain more worshipers for yourself, we pray, for you are worthy. And we ask that you do all this in us and through us. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> well, this will be our last sermon on the book of Psalms, at least in this series. And so, uh, as we come to this, I wanted to reflect a little bit about the time that we've spent in the book of Psalms. So just some observations on the time that we've spent here. We started, we started into Psalms on March the 22nd of 2015. That was Luke's seventh birthday, and he's 10 now. And uh, there, there are people who have come to us after we've started Psalms. There are people that came and left while we were in the midst of uh, Psalms. Um, about 30, 35 sermons or so a year from March of 15 to March of 16, and then March of 16 to March of 17, and then uh, March of 17 now to uh, June of 18. Uh, all, all tallied, it'll be 109 sermons on the book of Psalms. So there were a number of Psalms that we put together uh, and did um, multiples at once. Uh, it's, it's, it's a good opportunity to reflect on all the Lord has done for us. And I would encourage you, maybe this afternoon or this week, to sit down with the book of Psalms. And if you've been here, you know, through the course of that time, you have probably marked up your copy of Psalms. And I would encourage you to just page through and, and just let the Lord cause verses that maybe you highlighted or underlined or wrote a note by to jump out at you and just, just move quickly through the whole Psalter. And I think you'll, you'll enjoy that experience. I think the Lord will speak to you through that experience. Um, the first sermon that I preached here at Victory Memorial was at a joint worship service on May the 1st, 2016. We were, in, we were in Psalm 49 together that day. And then the first service that we were together as a merged church was on November 6th of 2016, and we were in Psalm 79 together that day. As we approach these last three psalms, Psalms 148, 49, and 50, uh, I wanted to just quickly call to your mind some of the things that we've seen. And, and so this is the result of me doing what I just recommended to you. I just paged through the psalms, and there were many things that jumped out at me. Um, these are some of the things that I noted. Psalm 1, the blessing of meditating on the scriptures. 
I, I don't know much that would be better for us spiritually, emotionally, mentally, than, than seeking to be like the blessed man described in Psalm 1. Jill and I were talking this morning. Uh, she was commenting on how uh, she feels like she's becoming more forgetful as she gets older. And, and, and we were talking together about how as we memorize and meditate on the scriptures, what we're doing is training our minds and we're increasing our ability to recall things. I, I think you'll make yourself more aware of what's going on, more able to call other things to mind. Your, your brain functions like a muscle. You should work that thing out on memorizing and meditating scripture. Psalm 2, the promise to the king. This is a promise that is going to come to pass. God has installed his king on Zion, his holy hill, and that king is going to reign forever. Psalm 8, the Lord's name is majestic in all the earth. Psalm 12, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground seven times, purified seven times. Psalm 16, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Psalm 23, the Lord is our shepherd. Psalm 27, he's our light and our salvation. Psalm 32, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Psalm 33, by your word, O Lord, were the heavens made. Psalm 36, your steadfast love reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the, to the clouds, and your righteousness is like the mountains. We could go on and on this way, couldn't we? Rehearsing the Lord's goodness to us. Psalm 84, 11, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Psalm 85, verse 10, the Lord has caused righteousness and peace to kiss each other. He's brought these things together. All of these glorious statements that are made across the book of Psalms, they all come from the character of God. And the character of God, as we get to the end of the book of Psalms, is what is prompting these praises. The character of God is prompting these praises. Jill and I were in London uh, this past week, and our last night there, we went and saw the play Wicked. I don't know if you've seen, or the musical Wicked. I don't know if you've seen this, this musical. That musical is what happens if you remove the character of God from the equation. If you remove God's character, what goes away with it is any kind of absolute morality, any kind of absolute truth. And then there is no right and wrong. There is no good and evil. It's only someone who's different and a different way of looking at things. But there is nothing that's ultimately wrong. Maybe I should say the wicked gives the backstory of the Wizard of Oz, you know, and it takes the wicked witch of the West and it makes her into someone who's just different. She's not really a bad person. She's not really evil. She's just different. It's like a commentary on the way that our culture looks at these, these things. Uh, as we come to Psalms 148, 49, and 50... Let me just ask you this question. How would we expect the Psalter to end? How would we expect the book of Psalms to end? And then follow that with this question. Why does it end this way? So the Psalter ends with praise. The Psalter ends with just uninhibited celebration of the living God. And the reason the Psalter ends this way is because 
the psalmist is convinced that everything that God set out to do at the beginning, everything on God's agenda when he began to make the world and, and to put things in motion will come to pass. And so in response to that, let's look together at Psalm 148. All of these Psalms, 146 through 150, start and end with the phrase, praise the Lord, which in Hebrew is hallelujah. So you get that in 148.1. And then look at the next phrase of, of Psalm 148.1, praise the Lord from the heavens. Let me draw your attention to verse 7. Verse 7 opens, praise the Lord from the earth. So what the psalmist is doing here is very clear. He's going to start saying, praise the Lord from the heavens. And then once he's walked through commanding everything in the heavens to praise the Lord, then he's going to say, praise the Lord from the earth. And then he's going to walk through and, and give instructions to everything in the earth to praise the Lord. And what informs him here is the creation account of Genesis 1. This is why, uh, this is why I asked for Genesis 1 to be read earlier in, in the service. So he starts in 148.1, praise the Lord from the heavens. Then he says, praise him in the heights. Notice how in verse 7, praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. So the heavens and the heights and then the earth and the deeps. And then he says in verse 2, speaking to the inhabitants of the heavenly realm, praise him all his angels, praise him all his hosts. Uh, this word hosts uh, could be rendered armies. It's referring to all of the hordes of angels that surround the Lord. In Daniel 7, we read of thousands upon thousands attending him and 10,000 times 10,000 who are waiting upon him. The, the Bible is testifying to us that there is a vast horde of unseen beings in the world and the psalmist is addressing the angels, the angelic host. This is, this is audacious, isn't it? You angels, you armies of heavens, armies of the heavens, praise the Lord. That's a command. You all should be praising him. He can do this because he knows that God is worthy of this praise. And then he turns from these, these uh, cognizant beings, these thinking beings, the angels, to the heavenly bodies. This is what we read about in Genesis 1, verse 3. This is like a commentary or a, a, a response to Genesis 1, verses 14 through 19. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. And then you remember in Genesis 1, 6 through 8, there's this sort of puzzling, kind of, kind of strange to our way of thinking statement that says that the Lord separated the waters from above, from the waters below, and then he made the, the firmament or, or the expanse between them. Well, informed by that, the psalmist says here in verse 4, praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. So he's just letting Genesis 1 inform the way that he talks about the heavenly realm. And then he makes this concluding statement here in verses 5 and 6. He says, let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. God said, let there be, and it was, and therefore they should praise. You see the logic there? Let them praise, for he commanded and they were created. This has implications for us, doesn't it? Because we too were created by the word of God. And the psalmist is going to 
flesh out those implications for us. Let me just make this observation and, and ask you to think about how it applies to you. This psalmist obviously believes Genesis 1. And he's obviously operating as though Genesis 1 is true. Do you believe the account in Genesis 1? What implications does the truth of the Scriptures have for your life? If we receive the Bible as the very Word of God, it has claims. It's making claims on us. This is the revelation from God. We should give much more attention to it than we do. Verse 5, let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Let me draw your attention to verse 13. Let them praise the name of the Lord for, and then it gives an explanatory statement. And then verse 6 says, and he established them forever. And then verse 14 tells us something that the Lord did. So these concluding statements, the opening statements, verse 1 and verse 7, those match one another. And then the concluding statements, verses 5 and 6, and verses 13 and 14, those also match one another. Notice how verse 6 says, he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. God's creation will not be altered until he's ready for it to be altered. He commanded, they were created. He established them, they will stand until he's ready to, as Psalm 102 says, roll them up like a garment and change them and make the heavens and the earth new. That brings us to verse 7. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. We also read about these sea creatures back in Genesis 1. Uh, Nathan read them earlier in the service. Older translations could translate this dragons. And, and I think that, that uh, what's in view here are these massive uh, serpentine beasts in the waters. There are whales in the oceans that are as long as basketball courts. If I was confronted with a, an animal that large, I might be tempted to call it a, a dragon, you know? This massive mouth on these huge whales. You great sea creatures in all deeps. There may also be, we had in verse 2, praise him all his angels. And then in verse 7, you great sea creatures. Uh, sometimes in the Bible, in, in the book of Job, for instance, uh, the, the uh, Leviathan, this great watery beast, is, is, is treated as a symbol of, of Satan. So there may be a, a correspondence between the angels and this massive animal in the water that is somewhat serpentine here. Everybody should praise the Lord. And then in verse 8, you have these forces of creation. Young men and maidens together, old men and children. It's interesting that he would, he would mention uh, kings here because at the very beginning of the Psalms, in Psalm 2, you have these rebel kings that are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, and they're told to be wise, to kiss the sun, to, to honor God and his king. And now, here at the end of the Psalter, like, functioning like bookends, these kings are again called to praise the Lord. And then verse 13 again corresponds to verse 5. Let them praise the name 
of the Lord. And then just as verse 5 has an explanatory statement, verse 13 says, for his name alone is exalted. We could go to various places in the Bible that speak of this. Isaiah speaks this way. He says, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The psalmist is ending this way, commanding everyone to praise the Lord because the Lord alone deserves praise. Everything that exists exists because of Him. Anything good that happens flows from Him. His name alone is exalted. And then verse 13 says, His majesty is above earth and heaven. He is transcendent in glory. And then in verse 14, he raised up a horn for his people. Look back at verse 6. He established them. So, so in verse, verses 5 and 6, that concluding statement is, let them praise the Lord for he commanded and they were created and he established them. This concluding statement says, let them praise the name of the Lord for he alone is exalted. He has raised up a horn for his people. That horn is is referring to the king from the line of David. The the horn is a a symbol of military might and conquest and victory. So the psalmist has started with the heavens and then concluded with creation. And then he goes to the earth and he concludes with redemption because creation implies redemption. If God has created the world, God is going to bring about the redemption of the world. And then he says in verse 14... This is really, I think, a surprising statement. He has raised up a horn for his people, praise for all his saints, or for all his, his, uh, the people marked by his loving kindness. This is a word built off the word hesed that refers to God's steadfast love. Praise for all those marked by his steadfast love. He's raised up a horn. We know who that is. That's Jesus. Praise for his people, essentially, his saints. Think about how that works. Praise for God's people is the horn of salvation. Here's what I think informs this. The best thing about us, the most most praiseworthy thing about us is our Christ-likeness. So God raises up the horn of salvation and that results in praise for the saints. Jill and I, as we, as we were in another country, another land, with a lot of like-minded people, we, we were talking about this, this sort of question that we had. Are British people just this nice, or is it just that we're with a bunch of Christians? And I think the answer is B. Uh, uh, people are people everywhere, right? People are sinners everywhere. You know, what, you know what I think is true? The best people in the world, the nicest people in the world, the people that you're going to find that are going to be loving and courteous and self-sacrificial and encouraging, those people are going to be Christians. And that's going to result in praise for them, but this is ultimately due to God. This is, this is God's doing, right? His name alone is exalted. And what's happening is, as we see his glory, we're being transformed, as Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians 3. And so this results in praise for God's people. It's, it's not that dissimilar from the benediction that, that I've chosen for this year, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, where, where it speaks of uh, the glory... 
uh, Jesus Christ being glorified and us being glorified in him. There's this transformation that happens in us. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. People that are near God are affected by him, transformed by him. And then the psalmist concludes, praise the Lord. Paul writes in Ephesians 3.10 that God's multifaceted wisdom will be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So the heavens, the the rulers and authorities, the angelic powers in the heavens are going to praise God through the church as a result of what the church, what God is doing in the church. Just as Psalm 148 testifies or commands, God is going to be glorified in the heavens above and on the earth beneath through the horn of salvation that he has raised up for his people, the king from the line of David. All creation will praise God. That brings us to Psalm 149. And as we approach this psalm, let me draw your attention to the reference to the godly or those marked by his steadfast love at the end of verse 1. And then there's another reference to the godly in verse 5 and another reference to the godly at the end of verse 9. So that these, these, these godly people, those who are marked by God's steadfast love, they're going to be mentioned at the, at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end of Psalm 149. The psalmist, again, he begins and ends with praise the Lord, hallelujah, first, first statement of 149, last statement of 149. And then he says in verse 1, sing to the Lord a new song. There's a command to sing to the Lord a new song. So as long as this command stands in the Bible, we're going to rejoice that we have people like Matt around who come up with new songs for us to sing. And, and the psalmist, in a sense, is doing exactly what he's commanding because he's writing a new song. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly or the assembly of those marked by God's steadfast love. And here again, um, we have a, a connection with, with Psalm 1. You remember Psalm 1 uh, spoke of how the, the wicked would not stand in the judgment, n- nor sinners in the in the congregation of the righteous. We have this congregation of the righteous at the beginning of the Psalms and now this assembly of the godly at the end of the Psalms. And then verse 2, let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. So there's a gladness that comes in our maker, a rejoicing in our king. Notice again, maker, creation, King, this has to do with redemption and the kingdom that God is going to establish. If we don't want to praise God in response to creation and redemption, we haven't thought clearly or deeply on what he has done. We should meditate on these things. The longer you think about creation... The longer you think about redemption, the more prompted you will be to obey what the psalmist is commanding you to do and praise him for it. In verse 3, he says, let them praise his name with dancing. And I was thinking about about what dancing is. And what we have in, in dancing is 
choreographed, practiced, rhythmic, patterned, nimble movements. And the psalmist is saying you should praise the Lord with dancing. Uh, I'm not suggesting that we're going to try that here at Kenwood, uh, but I do think that it is a worthwhile activity to, to bodily engage in praising the Lord. Maybe not in the gathered congregation, but uh, it is a good thing to praise the Lord bodily. And then it goes on, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. So the first three verses of Psalm 149, if you look at these statements, they're all statements that command praise for God. And the next three statements in verses 4, 5, and 6 are... Um, the, the, it, verse 4 is going to give us a reason to praise God, and then verses 5 and 6 are going to talk about how we, we go about enacting the praise of God. Verse 4 is a stunning verse. Verse 4 is one of these verses that every time I come to this, I'm surprised. Um, just yesterday, I saw, I get this email from dictionary, these emails from dictionary.com. There was a quotation from Stephen Colbert on yesterday's email, and, and he said something along, the, along these lines. This is not an exact quote, but this is basically what he said. A father needs to be a distant authority figure that his children won't really understand, and he needs to never express approval. Otherwise, how will they develop a concept of God? You, see, you hear what he's saying there, right, about God. He's saying that God is a distant authority figure who never really approves of people. Look at this verse. Verse 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. That's a stunning verse. That, that verse is, surprising, is as surprising to me as Genesis 1.28. You know, we just sort of have this instinctive idea that God is unhappy with us. He's going to be, he's going to be annoyed with us. We're going to bother him. And Genesis 1.28, after God has made them male and female, the first thing said next is, and God blessed them. God blessed them. God is delighted with his creation. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. As I was reflecting on this, I couldn't help but think about my, my kids and the way that I take pleasure in my kids. I love to see them run. I, I love to see them dance. I love to see them play ball. I love to see them play instruments. I love to see the things they draw. I, anything about, I just take pleasure in my kids. It's, it's a delight. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. If you will meditate on this verse, it will revolutionize your concept of yourself. If you're somebody, you know, I belong to Jesus. Jesus redeemed me. And, and, and I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit. I've been born again. I've been made alive. You believe these things to be true? Psalm 149 verse 4 is also true. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. It's, it's really just a stunning statement that the Bible makes. It's one of those statements that, you know, if, if, you, if you get this, you are going to feel the beauty of God's mercy, the joy of being reconciled to God, to be made right with him, to be 
at peace with Him. You'll feel the relief of being justified by faith, by His grace. And you'll feel the resilience of hope because you know that God is happy with you. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not identifying as a Christian, you need to understand this this will only apply to you if you will turn from your sin, which what you're doing there is you're just thumbing your nose at God by loving your sin and by continuing in your unrepentance. And, And you're telling him he's not really the authority and he doesn't really know what's good for you. And then your refusal to believe in Jesus, you need to turn from your sin and you need to place your hope fully and completely in Christ. Because as long as you don't do that, what you're saying to God is, I know you thought you needed to send your son to save me. I don't think I need that at all. That's what you're saying to him. I know you initiated this grand project of redemption that involved this mystery of of the eternal second person of the Godhead taking on human flesh and becoming a human being and living a righteous life and then dying a horrific death, and then right, yeah, you thought all that was necessary. I don't think any of that's necessary. That's what you're saying to God. God's not going to take pleasure in you as long as you are saying that to him. But if you'll turn from your rebellion against him and place your hope in the Redeemer, in Christ, the Lord takes pleasure in his people. You know, at, at a human level, um, if I know that my dad is pleased with me, it, it creates this sense of confidence, this sense of, of wholeness and stability that is really, really profound. Multiply that by infinity, and you've got the Lord takes pleasure in his people. Let me just encourage you to let yourself believe that. Believe it. God would not have inspired the psalmist to write it if it weren't true. Let yourself just lock onto these statements. The Lord takes pleasure in his people and make it yours. This is a verse you should memorize and meditate on. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. He's happy with you. God's approval And favor and pleasure flow to his people. Almighty in force, eternal in duration, immutable in perfection, simple in its reality, pure in its holiness. And like a young child that's confident of parental approval, the people of God who know God's pleasure are going to be confident, secure, stable, and joyful. If, if you meet someone who's insecure and they're peevish and they're self-centered, these are indications that they, they lack the sense of, of divine approval. And as a result, they're ugly and unpleasant. Look at the next words of this verse. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. The ESV renders this. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let me put this another way. He beautifies the afflicted. The humble are the afflicted. That word, the Hebrew term could be translated either way. And and the word for adorns or beautifies, it means he makes them beautiful. How does he do that? With salvation. He adorns the humble 
with salvation, or you could say he beautifies the afflicted with salvation. And it's interesting, the, words for salva- the word for salvation here is the Hebrew word Yeshua. I don't think the psalmist is predicting the name of Jesus, but that's the name of Jesus in Hebrew. It's a, it's a, it, I think it's just an interesting verbal coincidence, but it's also true. It's also true because what happens is as we're as we're converted to faith in Christ, as we turn from our sin, we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, and we're transformed into the same image. We're we're glorified like Christ. He adorns the humble with salvation. The proud, they don't think they need Jesus. They're not going to experience this beautification. People are made beautiful when they know that they're loved this way. The kind of love that produces the Psalms is the kind of love that's described here. Almighty, eternal favor of God. And then, and then think about what's being described here. These people are dancing, they're singing, they're rejoicing, not because of who they are, not because of the way they're gifted, not because they've always got the answers or, or never get down or anything like that, but because they know God. They know God, they experience Him, that's producing the rejoicing and, and the dancing and the celebration. And you know, happy people are more attractive than unhappy people, aren't they? So I think the psalm is simply describing what happens when we rejoice in the Lord. He adorns us with salvation. And part of that adorning is our responding with joy and thanksgiving and worship. The kind of love that produced the psalms makes people who sing and dance, and it makes them lovely and attractive and pleasant. The heroic deliverance that prompted these psalmists to write adorns the afflicted with a beauty that is beyond description because they have experienced God's love. Verse 5. Let the godly, or again, you could translate the hasadim. So you got this word hesed that means steadfast love or loving kindness. And then you've got this word chasadim that means something like the people of loving kindness. They translate it the saints or the godly. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Now here I think the rest of the Bible is going to fill in the gaps for us. Why are they singing for joy on their beds? Because on their beds they're not fantasizing about committing sin. On their beds they're meditating on the Lord. They're they're thinking about things like Psalm 149, verse 4. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. And as a result, they're singing for joy on their beds. Verse 6, let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands. What the psalm is going to go on to describe is the way that the people of God visit God's justice in the world. So the psalmist is going to explain in verses 7 through 9 why they have these swords. He seems to be envisioning this apocalyptic, as in end of time, conflict between God and his enemies. And this is a conflict that's going to be waged by the people of God. 
So look at what they're do, what they, why they have the swords in verse 6, verse 7, to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. Um, I think he's thinking of things like Romans 16. You remember Romans 16? Uh, in verse 17, Paul tells the church in Rome to, um, to hold fast to the gospel. And then he commends them and to be on the, on the watch against false teachers. And he commends them for doing so to this point. And then he says, for the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet, church in Rome. And, and, and from the context, what's clear is the way that the God of peace is going to crush Satan, which is an interesting dynamic, right? The God of peace is going to crush his enemies and thereby achieve peace. The way he's going to do that is through faithful gospel proclamation and ministry happening in the church of Rome. That's what the sword is talking about here. And then, and then in Revelation 19, you've got another uh, take on this with Christ coming and the armies of heaven and the armies of the redeemed behind him to, to bring his kingdom into reality. So praise, praise goes to war. Praise goes to war against uh, false ideas about God. Praise makes war on false stories about the world because when we praise God, we're praising Him that He made the world and that He redeemed the world. Praise makes war on unwarranted pride because what we're doing is we're, we're giving the credit where it's due rather than trying to heap it on our own shoulders. Praise takes up the sword against false hopes. Our hopes get disappointed when we think redemption is going to come from the wrong place. When we think healing is going to come from the wrong place. When we think joy is going to come from the wrong place. And as we praise the Lord, we're taking up the sword against those false hopes. Praise gives credit where it belongs. To God, the true Lord the teller and keeper of the true story who alone deserves the glory and the credit and who provokes hopes that will never disappoint. So those who are made beautiful by God's salvation, verse 4, exult in him, verse 5, and go to battle for him, verses 6 through 9. That brings us, oh, look at the end of verse 9 there. This is honor for all his godly ones. Again, there's this, this praise for the saints at the end of 148. Honor for the godly ones in 149. This is God's people experiencing the glorification that the New Testament is going to talk to us about. And it again, again ends with praise the Lord. That brings us to Psalm 150. This, this psalm, amen indeed. This psalm is like a crescendo of hallelujahs. So you got hallelujah at the beginning and end of all of each of 146 through 150. And then, and then you've got hallel or praise in every single line of Psalm 150. And, and what he does, what the psalmist does from the opening to the closing hallelujah is celebrate God. Can I suggest to you that this is what all creation 
was made for. All creation was made to celebrate God. All creation was made to enjoy His goodness. That's why the psalm ends the way it does. And we're not doing anybody any favors by not telling them that. Just this morning, I read, I read this, this statement. A new CDC study out today, I don't know when this statement, I found it online today. I don't know when it was made. A new CDC study shows the rate of increase in the national suicide rate in the U.S. doubled in the last decade, increasing on average by about 1% per year from 2002 through 2006 and by 2% per year from 2006 to 2016. The suicide rate is doubling. Why do people take their own lives? Because they're seeking some form of fulfillment and they're not finding it. And they conclude that there's no hope. We were made to praise the Lord. We're made to obey the commands given in Psalm 150. In Psalm 150, verses 1 and 2, the psalmist is going to tell us what we should pray, where we should praise God and what we should praise Him for. And then in verses 3 through 6, he's going to outline all the instruments that we should employ. So he starts... These are, this is a command, a second-person plural command. You all praise the Lord. And then he says in verse 2 there, praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. So God is, is in his heavenly temple. He is on his throne. We are to direct our praise to him there. And then verse 2, praise him for his mighty deeds. And I... I think you can just fill in the mighty deeds from the whole book of Psalms. Creation, redemption, provision, steadfast love. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness, which is unsearchable. It is infinite. There is no limit to it. You will never come into an end of God's excellent greatness. It will never fail you. It will go on and on forever. And then verses 3 through 6 is all the instruments. I bet you were hoping that I was going to show up with my shofar this morning. I'm going to disappoint those hopes. Um, I... There's just a, a list of, of instruments here. Verse 3, praise him with trumpet sound. You probably weren't hoping that. Anyway, um, praise him with trumpet sound. I think this trumpet is probably alluding to uh, Leviticus 25, where in the year of Jubilee, a trumpet was to be blown. And then that year of Jubilee trumpet is projected into the future in Isaiah 27 and in 1 Thessalonians 4. When Paul talks about Christ returning with the trumpet call of God, I think he's got this probably this jubilee trumpet in mind. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Uh, Vicky, I, I asked my, Matt, I don't know if he contacted you, but it, yeah, anyway, sometimes we get to have the harp. We didn't get it today, at least not yet. Um, maybe, anyway, uh, praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. We had some, uh, some little tingling things up here today. That was great. Praise him with tambourine. Thank you, uh, Bryant. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud, clashing cymbals. Instruments, instruments find their ultimate purpose 
in the praise of God. There, there are seven instruments listed here. I think this seven is, is whole, it's a symbolic way of referring to all instruments. All instruments are to be used in the praise of God. Instruments achieve their highest purpose when used in the praise of God. But instruments don't play themselves, do they? And thus, verse 6, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Everything with the breath of life in it should praise God. Because to live, to be alive, is to experience God's goodness. And to experience God's goodness is to owe Him thanks and praise. At the beginning of all things, God spoke the world into being. At the end of all things, His love and power will be fully displayed through the total redemption and restoration that He will achieve. All created things and all living beings owe Him praise. And those who know Him will gladly render up the homage that is due Him. Let's pray together. Father, we want to know You. And Lord, I pray that You would cause Your Spirit to convince Your people that You take pleasure in Your people. Lord, even, even for those here today who are saying to themselves, yes, I believe that. Lord, I pray that You would cause them to experience it at deeper levels I pray that you would cause your favor to be what characterizes your people. Lord, keep us from being people that are angry, people that are arguing, people that are mad because other people don't believe what we believe. Lord, keep us from all of that. Make us a people marked by the fact that we've experienced your love. Make us a people who are joyful because we, we know that you love us. A people who are thankful because we know your love. A people who are secure and patient and gentle. Lord, transform us into your likeness. We ask that you do all this for your glory. We pray that you would show what a great God you are by transforming our character to make it like yours. So Lord, we pray for your help. You can accomplish this by the power of your spirit, working through these, these words that you have inspired, you can bring all this about. And so we're calling upon you to do it. And we pray that you would win many people to follow you, to praise you, to know you, to love you, to live for you. Lord, we ask that you do this in our city, in this state, in this nation, and in all nations. We love you, and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.